we want to pass as much of that final sales price on to the entrepreneur. That's where the impact happens. That's what matters for us. It's what matters for our partner. And it's certainly what matters for the entrepreneur. Because we're a social enterprise and a not-for-profit, we bring this for-profit and not-for-profit together every day. So I feel like all those experiences sort of came together here. So once you figure out how to network and connect with people, and I don't mean network in the cheesy old sense, but in that meaningful way, like give first before you get, that is going to be an invaluable skill no matter how things shake out. Welcome to the Beyond Capital Podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Buddy Teaster. Buddy is the CEO of Souls for Souls, a nonprofit committed to fighting poverty through the collection and distribution of shoes and clothing. Buddy is a serial entrepreneur, having founded and run a number of companies, including Click Patrol, an online advertising company, and RTM, a professional development network for university alumni and membership organizations. Welcome, Buddy. It's so great to have you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So as Ed mentioned, you've started several companies. I would love to kick this off by hearing your story and you telling us a little bit more about your early startups. Sure. So I think one of the things, and it certainly wasn't a plan, but that has led me to be super happy and feeling productive where I am now is that my career has been a mix of not-for-profit and for-profit, and a lot of the for-profit has been in the startup world. So I, I went into the theater right after college. I went back and got my MBA in arts administration and ended up working at YPO, uh, the Young Presidents Organization, for a while, which gave me a lot of insight into business and not-for-profit. Then I left to start in one of the early online learning kind of companies. We're still using CD, so online maybe being a little generous. Came back to YPO for another stint, left to do RTM Networks, which was really trying to leverage something that was starting to get traction in, in the world around how do you leverage alumni networks and to, and to use that more effectively for learning and for business. And then uh, back to YPO where we started the network program. And then after that, uh, really the opportunity came to Souls for Souls. And because we're a social enterprise, and a not-for-profit, we bring this for-profit and not-for-profit together every day. So I feel like all those experiences sort of came together here. You know, it can be hard to leave a company that you started, and we've heard from entrepreneurs that it's challenging to know when, as the the CEO and founder, that you should make an exit. Um, what? Just tell us a little bit kind of what, what motivated you um, to transition and, and also maybe even kind of what your personal motivations were to start your current organization. So I did not start Souls for Souls. Uh, I like to think really that I restarted it when I came. Souls for Souls was about six years old and was sort of circling the drain, really. Uh, we were broke. 
They had fired the founder and CEO. The board had dwindled down to three people, and they weren't very excited about being here. Our reputation was kind of in tatters. So there was a lot of ways that it felt like a startup, although it was not. But over time, some of those choices were not mine. Um, the Click Patrol, for example, technology changed, and literally overnight we went from having a growing, thriving business to no customers. Like in one day, that went away. So, you know, I guess I've learned lessons like all of us the hard way. And one of them is, if, for me, the ability to adapt and be flexible is one of the most critical skills. And so, you know, whether that it was a choice about when to get out or when it was like, hey, it's a new day and everything you thought you knew about it doesn't apply anymore. I think that's probably been one of the biggest takeaways for me. And it works whether you're an entrepreneur or, you know, I'm, I'm the CEO here now and the lessons are just as valid. So I think for me, that flexibility is probably one of the most important skills that I see in great entrepreneurs. They might be focused. They might be really clear about where they're headed, but super flexible about how they get there. That's really well put. I was looking at your academic background and you studied religious studies and French as an undergraduate before you went to business school and then started your companies. Now, business school, I probably can understand the why behind that, as with religious studies. But I'm really curious, what is the why behind studying French? <laughs> it's actually a compromise. So uh, I was the first one on either side of my family to go to college. And when I got there, I was, I was planning to study economics. That seems like a responsible thing to do with this kind of opportunity. But I got there and realized that's not what I love. And religious studies, I went down that path very hard. World religions really attracted me. I was super intrigued. My father, it's still the biggest fight we've ever had is when I said to him, Dad, I'm not going to major in economics. I'm going to major in religious studies. And he's like, what are you doing? You're throwing away this amazing opportunity to get a great job. I thought, I said to him, I thought I was here to learn. So French was the compromise. Like if I had a, a second language skill, maybe I would somehow be more marketable. So I don't know that there are many cases in the world where majoring in French is the compromise, but that's <laughs> how that worked out. And, but it also, when I went back to get my MBA, I think it was another way for me to, to think about this hybrid idea because it was an MBA, but it was at the same time getting a master's in arts administration. So I kept this other side of my life, the creative, interesting service, give back kind of piece was totally interwoven with the MBA. And again, I think that's been a big part of what's led me to where I am today finding ways to combine both sides of that. Well, the reason I asked that is because I majored in Russian literature. <laughs> <laughs> I actually minored in French. You did? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. So we all have a little je ne sais quoi. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit more about um, Souls for Souls. Tell us sure. um, what does it do? Uh, what's the purpose? So Souls for Souls, we really think about using shoes and clothes to create opportunity for people. And initially when we first said that it, it really resonated and we thought about how it would give opportunity to other people, especially entrepreneurs in the developing world as a way to create a small business or an income for themselves so that they could provide for their families in the long term and not be dependent on aid and charity. But as we sort of unpeeled that, we, we realized that opportunity meant a lot more than that. So in some cases, it's an opportunity for a kid to go to school because she has the right pair of shoes. It is an opportunity for people to not 
have to walk barefoot and be at risk of injury and disease, which can, you know, we might not worry about it as much, but in a lot of places that can, that small accident can lead to really dramatic consequences. And it's also an opportunity for people to volunteer, to clean out their closets, to do something good for the planet. So that's, first of all, how we think about opportunity. The mechanics of what we do, we collect new and used shoes and clothes. This past year, we collected about 5 million pairs of shoes and about 5 million pieces of apparel. Some of that, uh, and when we give it away for free, it's always new. And we do that to, to help people in need in the short term. That might be after a natural disaster. You know, we're recording this just a, a week after really severe tornadoes hit Middle Tennessee, where I live now. And we were there just a few days later with shoes and clothes for people who had nothing. So that's one way. And we do that around the world for just people in need as well. Then all the used shoes and clothes that we collect and the new, if we have permission from the donor, we sell to people in the developing world. And then they resell it. And that's how they're able to create something where they have control over their own destiny in most places. And for most people, that's something that it's hard to come by. So it means a lot. They already know how to work really hard. And then that opportunity word that I mentioned, that's where it really applies. We help them leverage that hard work that they're willing to do by giving them tools and a supply chain that can actually allow them to make some money instead of just sort of these at a subsistence level. There are a number of dynamics at play here. I mean, one of them is that one in five children in developing countries are living on less than $2 a day. And that means that there are about... 385 million girls and boys living in extreme poverty without access to basic goods and services, including shoes and clothes. Um, but I, I would love to dig deeper knowing that you do have a global reach. Um, how, how does the distribution of the donated shoes and clothes work? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's part of what I love about what, about what Souls for Souls does, because there is a giant for-profit sector around this, right? These used goods and uh, excess goods move around the world. It's all cash. It sloshes around. It's not always super above board. Mm -hmm. Dealing in countries where uh, the import of goods is the one place where the government can kind of get their hands on tax revenue and control the flow of things. That can be a pretty messy situation. And so we have found a way, I think, to navigate that. We always have uh, a local NGO partner on the ground, they have to deal with the same stuff. So I'm not saying that we've found our way around that. That would be fantastic. But once they learn how to do that, getting high quality used shoes and clothes to people who already have some experience or certainly willing to work hard to learn, it transforms them, right? Because in many of the places where we work, the only supply or the only access to shoes and clothes is the used market. There's very little new and there's very little formal retail. So this is the way people shop. And often by the time shoes and clothes get to them, they've been really picked over, right? Especially if it comes from the U.S., it might go through a thrift system here like Goodwill, which is a not-for-profit, or Buffalo Exchange or Plato's Closet, which is for-profit. And so, by the, and then, so the best stuff gets picked out, then they sell what's next to somebody else, and the best stuff gets picked out. And that might happen five or six times. So, by the time it gets to Haiti, Honduras, Zambia, the good stuff's gone. The price is really high because everybody's had to touch it and get their little piece. So, they've got low quality product at a high price, which is a lousy recipe for being able to make money. 
And so our model is we don't have a thrift piece. We take it right, especially on the used side, right from your closet, or if it's new, right from brands and retailers, warehouses or factories. We get it to people so that they flip it around, right? And now it's high quality product at a low price because our goal, and we're aligned with our local NGO partner, we want to pass as much of that final sales price on to the entrepreneur. That's where the impact happens. That's what matters for us. That's what matters for our partner. And it's certainly what matters for the entrepreneur. So what does a pair of shoes cost in Haiti for, like if I end up giving a pair of shoes to Souls for Souls, men's 11, running shoes, what, what do those go for when they get to the sure. other end? It's a, it's, uh, to me, it's fascinating. So like everything else, it depends on brand and quality, right? There's no, <laughs> the marketing that Adidas does globally is super effective, right? So everybody knows that that's worth more than an unbranded shoe, even if it's new. But I'll tell you how the math works for us on a pair of used shoes, because I think this gives you an idea of the power of a pair of shoes. So we only sort our shoes by grade. We don't pick out men's, women's, running, anything like that. We just say if it's B grade, it's high quality. If it's C plus, it's lower quality. If it's C, it's lower quality. And then there's always some usually sort of 1% to 2% that's unusable. So that we take out. And then we sell it by the grade. So for us, I'll stay with Haiti for a second. We sell it to our NGO partner there for a dollar a pound. He pays shipping and customs and transportation to get it to his location. He runs, in this case, a school. They do English as a second language, and they also have a microcredit program. This is a way for him to help fund that through an earned revenue stream. So he, let's say he has another dollar in it. So his cost is two. He might sell to the entrepreneur for four and she might get on average 10. Okay. Before, as I mentioned, often women are already doing this job. She might be paying $8 for something that's still going to go for 10. And it takes a lot longer to move because it's the same as everybody else. The quality is kind of low and I There's see. no differentiation in the market. I see. But here's the, here's the part where your shoe, I think, is interesting. So that's the average. So what might happen is in that box, there is a, a new unbranded shoe that she sells for $6. She's still making money, but not much. But your branded running shoe, let's say you've got a Nike running shoe in there that's still in pretty good shape. Well, Nike, she might get $25 a pair for that, right? She paid the same per pound, but there are that opportunity, and because we don't sort it or grade it, it happens a lot. You know, she might have one or two pair in there that really make a big difference, and then she's got the rest of it. She can make money on every pair. So that's kind of how it works. If I was going to go make a pair of shoes, like just purpose-made to serve this population, you know, in some large, reasonably large amount of quant- you know, quantity, and I, and I went to a factory and said, I just want to make a super basic shoe, like more on the order of the six dollar one than the you know the, obviously this mm-hmm. wouldn't be branded, you know what's like the most like what would it cost to get a shoe like that made, like, I mean not it probably cost more than a dollar a pound, right? <laughs> yes, it would. What would it cost? <laughs> so we're working on this right now for a totally different reason. There's a huge you guys probably both know this. There's a huge homeless population in our public schools. Kids. It's, it's about a million and a half kids every year experience homelessness in some way. It's a big problem. And people are working on housing and food and school supplies, and thank God for that. But shoes are not really in the mix, and they are really important. 
So we're trying to find a sustainable, fundable way to get shoes to these kids. And so we're looking for this. We're trying to find it. The best that we can find is about $10 a pair for a decent pair of unbranded athletic shoes that are going to last a kid six to eight months. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's more than I thought. Yeah. That's actually less than I thought. That's less than you thought? (laughs) Yes. That's more than I thought. Knowing how much my son's Nikes cost. Yeah. Well, it's, you know. How much they probably make off of that. But like pay, you know, like Walmart. There's though, a pretty big, there's a yeah, pretty big margin on the Nike shoe. But the unbranded stuff, it is not as cheap as you think. That has been our experience. And two, you have to order in such giant quantities to drive the price down that that doesn't work for us, right? I mean, Walmart might be able to do that, mm-hmm. but Souls for Souls can't do that. They would be a good partner. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out: is this, is this the kind of thing where we have a supply chain partner? Is this a thing where we try to raise money and say, you know, look, we can get shoes on these kids for 15 bucks a pair, which you can't touch anyplace else. So we're trying to figure out what that looks like. But it really is driven by what's the cost of getting the shoe from Honduras or China or Vietnam to the U.S. so that we can get it on kids' feet. They'd be a good partner, but they also, that's kind of their customer. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of their customer. You're right. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of weird. But that's that's super interesting. And, you know, something I think about a lot is how fashion is changing. I am a more, way more frequent shopper on the real rail of late. Mm-hmm. A number of my peers are also doing exactly the same thing. And yep. that also, you know, we're also more conscious of wearing things more often. I think your average piece of clothing is worn once or less than four times, something between one and four times, which is shocking to me. Um, but I would love to hear your thoughts on the the supply side of the donations of the shoes and clothes. Have you seen a change since there are more kind of sustainable means of recycling your clothes and also um, even, you know, making money off your closet? I love talking to smart people. Yes, it's a huge impact. And it, it took us a while to figure it out because some of this, like the real real, has been growing, growing quickly, but there's a lot of other channels now than there used to be. So when I came to Souls for Souls, I mentioned this B and C grade. So when I first came to Souls for Souls in 2012, we had about 65% B grade and about 33% C grade. That was roughly how that worked. So the difference for us financially is B grade is worth a dollar a pound in that scenario that I just told you. And C is worth 30 cents a pound, right? So a big delta. Over the last six or seven years, those numbers have switched. So the B grade is only 35% of what we get now. So if you do the math on that, it's a big financial impact. So we're having to run harder to just stay even. And one of the primary reasons for that are there are these other channels to monetize your used product now. Yes. Real, real, thread up, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Buffalo Exchange, Plato's Closet, they're all eBay. There are all these places now where, and because co- consumers are comfortable buying and wearing used product, that's changed. And all the platforms make it easier to monetize it, ship it, et cetera. So it's, it's had a huge impact on us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then also, I mean, I know this is a trend in Africa. The overpicked clothing is undesirable because yeah. everybody has a smart, uh, every, well, not everybody has a smartphone, but most people have access to social media and they kind of see, see the trends. Um, and so I think that they're also not interested so much. They prefer Fashion, real fashion, um, not just 
you know, discarded leftovers. So I think you brought that up and I, it sounds like you have a solution to that as well, but that was just something that really got me thinking about your business model. I would love, um, if you could tell us perhaps what some of the difference are, differences are for you in running a nonprofit versus, um, the for-profit companies that you have run previously. So I would, I would say that the biggest one is one that probably you've heard in other conversations that you've had, but it's around how do you know if you're having an impact? So for most for-profit companies, the, the easiest one is what's your profit, profitability. And so there are lots of metrics and standardized metrics to, to compare that really doesn't exist very many places in the not-for-profit world. And even though we are profitable, you know, we, we make money that we then reinvest back into our programs and our people, which is really important to us. But that's not the only metric that we can use or we would make a lot of dumb decisions here given our mission of, of you know, helping to disrupt the cycle of poverty around the world. So what we've come up with is a metric for us that we call economic impact. And it tries to capture the value of a pair of shoes or a piece of, piece of clothing in the country where it goes. And depending on the channel and whether it's new or used, we can do the math on that. And so it has led us to say financial performance is important, but also if we want to have a billion dollars in economic impact by 2030, which is our goal, we have to make decisions every day that are that balance those two. And so I'll just give you a small example. A few years ago, Toys R Us went out of business. And so that impacted Babies R Us, one of their subsidiary brands. So we had a warehouse company call us. They got stuck with 144,000 pairs of baby shoes in one of their warehouses. And they said, do you want them? So we talked to some people around with, we worked in Eastern Europe with a terrific social enterprise in Moldova. And so we said, Hey, Mark, this is what we have. What would you pay for this? He's got, a, he's got a network of thrift stores there. So he's got a way to move a lot of product. And he came back and I don't know what the numbers are, but he, the number that he gave us, like you, it doesn't work. Right, right. We'd have to unbox the shoes, transport them. It just didn't make any sense. But because we had this number around economic impact, like, well, wait a minute, there's another, there's another thing here. So rather than just say no, which is what we would have done before we had that lens, we said, okay, Mark, if you can cover the cost, we'll do this because we want to have the economic impact. We want to get you these shoes. We don't want them to go in the ground or go to some, we want them to go to you. And it gave us another way to think about it. And so to me, that is the, the biggest difference is finding the right way to have a North Star, a way to evaluate every decision that allows us to balance the mission and the financial performance. Yeah, that's excellent. I, I, I really appreciate the way it's, you put that with the North Star being able to, ba- and, and really the vision. Do you find that there are any special techniques you need for sort of recruiting and engaging and retaining your staff? I sort of like the cliche is that a nonprofit doesn't pay as well. Um, you know, that the people there, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but I just wonder how do you think about your staff and, you know, bringing them on board and keeping them engaged and, and, and happy? Yeah, it's such an important question. And I think there are some things that are easier in the for-profit world and some things that are harder. And I think there are some things that are just about being small. So I, we work hard to pay 
competitively in our market, right? Looking at the not-for-profit sector, but not just the not-for-profit sector. We just went through this in the last few months. And we are, like, I was shocked at how much sort of at the midpoint for most of the people we were. So I feel good about that. We pay people bonuses. We have really hard metrics that our board approves and measures us all against. And if we hit them, we get we get a financial benefit from that. But we also have some caps that if we were to have an incredible year, unlike a for-profit world, we say, okay, great, we earned all that. That doesn't happen here, right? So we pay people fair. We make make it really clear about what the triggers are and what the impact is if we hit those targets. And people, I think, here feel fairly compensated. The part that is great is that we also get to share stories here every day of having an impact of somebody who got to go to work because they had the right pair of shoes or who was able to buy a house after being almost homeless through the, our microenterprise program. Those things, you don't get that every day in the for-profit world, and we thrive on that here. So that's a benefit that we have, a competitive advantage against some for-profit companies. But the hardest thing for us is the fact that we're small. I mean, we have 70-ish employees now, and we have hungry, smart, young people, and there's not a growth path here. So how do we how do we help them grow professionally so that when the day comes, and for most of them it will come, when there's not an opportunity to match what they want to do and what they can do and what we need here, so that when they leave, they don't feel they feel like it was time well spent. Like I learned a lot. I have a high bar for what I want to do next instead of treating people like they're disposable or like, hey, you have to take a crappy salary because we're a not-for-profit. We are not playing that game. But the hardest thing is knowing that it's really difficult, given our size, to give people a path that would keep them here as long as they would like. And that sometimes is a really painful thing. I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the books that kind of helped form my thinking around uh, Beyond Capital, which currently is a nonprofit, but raising a venture fund was, uh, I think, called, called Charity Case, um, around how we should fund our nonprofits so that they could thrive. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. I don't know that book. So thank you for mentioning that. You're welcome. Let's pivot a little bit to you and the personal side of things. The best part of our show. (laughs) We think it is. (laughs) I don't don't know about that. I think we just covered the best part. So how do you, how's your morning look? Um, What is your morning routine? How do you get excited for the day? So probably for the last, 30 years now, a little bit more. Running has been an anchor for me. So five days a week, running is how I start my day. I try to get in about 10K every morning. And for the last 20 years or so, I've been an ultra marathoner. So like Saturday, I'm going to do a 50K just a little bit west of Nashville with the goal this June of running another 100 miler out in Wyoming. So running is a key part of my social life and certainly my mental health and physical well-being is tied up in that. Um, then for me, some other routines back to work for a second, but it's been, it has been one of the most effective things that I think we do is every morning at eight o'clock, the executive team, there are five of us, we have a 10 to 20 minute phone call to check in with each other, like what's important, what's going on that day. And for me, that is such between the run, breakfast, and that eight o'clock call, I feel like I've got a really fantastic running start on every day. How are your knees doing? (laughs) (laughs) 
So I did two years ago have knee surgery, but since then I've done a hundred miler and a bunch of 50 Ks and other stuff. So knock on wood, yeah, seems to be okay. That's amazing. It's very impressive. I do not identify as a marathon runner myself, sadly. <laughs> it's, it's something I don't think I'll ever be able to do. I know, I know. I've done triathlons. I've done plenty of half marathons, but that's been the, the max for me. Triathlon seemed impossible. The amount of time it takes to train for a triathlon blows me away. So kudos for yeah. you. Yeah. I've done a couple half Ironman, but the I trained for a marathon one time and I my body ached so much. <laughs> and then ultimately I couldn't do it because I got sick. And then I was like, never again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. So just... Uh, would love to hear about the vision of souls for souls, um, moving forward. Um, you know, it's possible that one day everybody will have a pair of shoes, although, you know, we always need more shoes once they, they get worn down, but is there a larger vision of how, um, shoes and clothes can expand out to other categories? You know, but we've decided at least for the next few years, no, that, and you said this, so much of what's made and worn now, clothes and shoes, but especially clothes, winds up in the trash. It's not worn very much. It's not very well made in many cases. It's not worn for very long, and then people just throw it away. So the gap between what's out there to be collected and used and turned in, repurposed into opportunity for other people, like we don't need to chase anything else because there's so much there to do. You know, we just started, we opened last year uh, a warehouse and an office in the Netherlands to start working in Western Europe. We just opened a small office in Singapore to start working in Asia. So, like, and we have nothing in South America. So when you think about the opportunity, it's enormous. And it seems like with our name, our track record, the incredible relationships that we've had, especially on the corporate side with apparel and footwear companies, there's so much more room to go that I think we're going to stay in that lane for the foreseeable future. And how do you measure the environmental impact of your work? Yeah, uh, we need to be more sophisticated than we are at that. You know, mostly to date, we've tracked how many pounds we've kept out of landfills. Yeah. And that's something. But actually, we were just having a conversation this morning of how do we translate that into carbon footprint or pounds of CO2? Cap- I mean, there, there are more sophisticated ways now to do that. And we need to get on that bandwagon. You know, for so long at Souls for Souls, the message has been more around the let's get everybody a pair of shoes, let's create business opportunity for people. That the sustainability piece has it's been there, but it hasn't we haven't led with it. And that has really changed in the last two years. Companies are coming to us now and saying, We need your help in telling a sustainability story. Like we're working on our supply chain, we're using better chemicals, we're thinking about how the cotton has grown, but this sort of second life piece of what happens after you're done with it, companies don't have great answers for that yet. And so increasingly, their companies are coming up saying, can you help us make it real and then bring those stories back to tell our employees, our investors, our customers, so that they understand the impact they can have and that we can have together. Well, for what it's worth, to me, the the big sort of, pink elephant in the room on, on sustainability with footwear is durability. Yeah. I don't Mm -hmm. think people talk about it very much, particularly with athletic shoes or skate shoes, because with 
my son growing up, some brands would wear out so fast. It was just like, why are they putting this? I mean, I know like for grip, mm-hmm. you know, softer rubbers are more grippy. But mm-hmm. for like a kid who's just going to be running around a playground, you really need that <laughs> super grip. Right. And I just wonder if durability, oh, I don't know. I, want, I mean, I, I know why nobody talks about it because it's sort of a derivative. It's, you know, you're not, it's not a direct thing you think about. But I don't know. Durability to me is where a lot of that environmental impact could really be made. Absolutely. And quality. Yeah, and quality. Yeah, holding on to things longer and wearing yeah. your clothes longer. Some of it's just crap. Well, I think totally. one of the things that's going to happen a lot, and I, I, we work a lot with Adidas, but I know other companies are also thinking hard about it, and I'll, I'll mention another one. But Adidas now has, I think they call it Project Future Loop. I don't know if I have exactly right, but they are designing every element of the shoe to be recycled. Like yes. the, so not only reused and quality, those things I think are, you know, certainly a part of the Adidas's brand, but that from the beginning, they're thinking about what's going to happen to the outsole, what's going to happen to the shoelaces, and can every part of it be turned back into some part of the supply chain, you know, whether it's raw materials. Or, that's the only, shoes are super hard to recycle, right? There's so many glues and different kinds of fabrics and stuff that most people don't even try. Yeah. And that's right. so designing it from the beginning is I think going to be a big part of the answer. And then you've also got companies on the non-athletic side, like Allbirds, which mm-hmm. I'm such a huge fan of them because their message, their marketing, their customer service, everything is aligned around, aligned around this sustainability idea. And that was from day one. And so that I think is increasingly, there's still going to be always a big fat part of the curve for I need cheap shoes at high volume, right? That's going to happen. But I think once Adidas figured out how to turn ocean plastic into shoes and they made a hundred pairs and then a thousand pairs and then a million pairs and then 10 million pairs, like eventually that's going to be technology lots of companies can use. So I think that's going to happen more and more. Absolutely. And I just can't wait to see the revolution and the evolution of, of the fashion world. Um, Cause I think it's kind of going to be the next big thing. Um, last question from us. Uh, we met through the Young Presidents Organization, and I know that networks have been an important part of your life. Um, so maybe you could just leave us with some wisdom from you, buddy, about how uh, connecting with people has fueled your career. I think connectivity is the key to all of it. And I mean that from how we think about what we do and our businesses and how they connect with others and connect with purpose. But I also think even like the conversation that you and I had over email, how we met and what doors that's going to open, that matters just as much. And for me, YPO is an amazing example of that. I mean, it's been designed since 1950 for that kind of thing to happen. And I think in the last 15 or 20 years, the focus on creating networks of interest, whether that's business or personal or social are, has transformed YPO. And I think that's possible in so many areas of life. I just, you know, I have a 23 year old daughter who's just now beginning her professional life. And, you know, it's sort of one thing to have your old man kind of nag at you about networking, but then I will say, well, let me give you five examples of how this has affected me in the last month. And it goes from being like, yeah, quit yelling at me, dad, to, oh my God, that's exactly what I want to have happen. And I think 
that, you know, I will, we sort of joked about millennials and Gen Z earlier, but I think that's getting lost, right? As people do more virtual, remote, screen-based things, the ones who figure out how to network and connect with people, and I don't mean network in the cheesy old sense, but in that meaningful way, like give first before you get, that is going to be an invaluable skill no matter how things shake out. Yeah, really well put. And we are recording this around the time of the COVID-19 outbreak. And that's actually the saddest part for me is missing out on human to human connection um, as a result of, you know, lots of things being canceled. So we are so glad to have you on, on our podcast. We hope to meet you in person, hopefully in Dallas soon. And thank you so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Really. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks, buddy. It's been great talking to you. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.